Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Robotics Podcast. Could you please introduce yourself? Uh, yes, uh, my name is Sebastian Riesi and I'm a professor at the IT University in, in Copenhagen. Uh, and I'm doing research on um, AI and in uh, for robots, but also for a lot of for video games, uh, focusing on things like evolutionary computation and also now more uh, deep learning and deep reinforcement learning. Thanks for joining us, Professor. I would like to go back when you were a child. Do you have any memory that we were interested in science or technology? Yeah, I remember I was I was always quite actually about robot. I was always very curious. I remember seeing like these. Uh, I think one movie that really um, made a big impact on me was this. Uh, I don't know what the name actually in English is. I think it's Number Five. Uh, it was this this robot that became alive and had uh, you know like a, um, yeah like. A, had led personality and and I think that had a big impact on me watching that as a kid and and kind of uh, then I was fascinated I think with robots but also with AI and trying to make um, creating more more intelligent uh, uh, robots so I think a lot was from from watching watching some movies um, I think that piqued my early interest in this kind of uh, area. Mm-hmm. Now, what kind of question you had as a child because I think you sunk so deeply about uh, this. Uh, uh, scenes. What kind of question you had at this time? I think. Yeah, that's a good. Uh, I'm not sure I remember <laughs> every, all of them, but uh, I think I was always just fascinated by, um, yeah, by the question: Can we create something that, like, can something human created, like a machine that has, uh, like, this this robot in that movie uh, number five that has feelings, that has a personality? Mm-hmm. I think I found that kind of fascinating. Um, like a human-created system that that shows some uh, some properties of what uh, biological evolution um, created. So so that always fascinated me from what I remember. But um, yeah. Uh, it's a yeah a, a long time ago. So how you define a robot or machine intelligent in general from your work expertise? Yeah. So so I would say it's. I mean, it's really. I think there are a lot of different definitions of of what a robot is so I I don't think I have a perfect definition I think a robot is something that is um, maybe tries to I think a lot of people have this kind of uh, some people might say a robot is um, you know is it there's a lot of discussion is it is a toaster robot is a is a tv a robot for me it is something that is actuated that somehow interacts with the world uh, in, 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 in some way. So I think um, I don't have a perfect definition of what it is, but a system that has some actuation, it, has, it can somehow perceive its environment in some way. Uh, I'm sure there are a lot of examples where people would say it's a robot, but it doesn't have these properties. But I think actuation and somehow sensing its environment and being able to, to act in that environment, I think is, is what, um, what would define uh, a robot for me. But I know it's not the, likely not the, the perfect uh, definition. And for machine intelligence, what could be the precise right. definition? I believe there are different forms of machine intelligence. So I, 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 say, I would say in some sense we have, 
you know, machines that are, you could say they are intelligent in, in certain and very narrow areas. So they, they know how to uh, solve like particular challenges well, like they know how to play Go at beyond human level. They can play StarCraft. So I would call that machine intelligence, but a narrow form of machine intelligence. And then I guess there's the more general machine intelligence or general artificial intelligence where, where we are very far from achieving this, where you have one system that can do, that can perform multiple tasks and that can, uh, for me, one important property would be of real intelligence, like can it continuously learn to improve itself? Can it learn to set its own goals instead of us having to basically define all the, 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 the properties of the environment and then just seeing what, what comes out, but that the machine can itself set some goals. It can uh, continually learn and improve. And I think that's one thing where we're quite far from uh, achieving that. Mm -hmm. Great. So if you remember what is the first machine learning or system you will or robot as well, uh, do you remember when? Yeah, I, I, it was in my undergrad in, um, when I was studying in, in Marburg in, in Germany. Um, and there I, was, uh, I took this course data mining. And then I was really fascinated by um, the course introduced us to these neural networks. Uh, and so we, that was the first kind of neural network that I built in this course. And I was especially fascinated by um, these neural networks called self-organizing maps or Cohonan maps, which I thought was really cool that they basically learn without any supervision. So it's a form of unsupervised learning. And I think I found that really fascinating that without any labels, the system can still figure out what to do. And I think that's when I really knew that um, I wanted to go and, and study and um, really study deeply like about AI yeah. and machine learning and then pursue a PhD was, I think the start was this kind of data mining course uh, in, in Germany. And then the first time um, I, um, I built, I wouldn't say that I built it, but I, uh, I, I, uh, I was responsible for the software part of this is when I, uh, a, a robot, um, so I have more experience with simulated robots than with actual physical robots. But um, so my first kind of um, more deeper contact with physical robots was when I worked with did a postdoc with Hot Lipson uh, at Cornell, and there we made this um, what we call this wire bending robot. So uh, I worked there with a PhD student that built a machine that can make a robot out of a one-dimensional piece of wire. Uh, and I also dabbled a little bit in hardware there, but it's definitely not my my strongest suit. I'm more um, I'm more like on the simulation side. But uh, that was uh, um, uh, that was a really fun project working on this 1D making robots out of a one-dimensional string of wire, inspired kind of by how ribosomes uh, can can construct um, a different um, uh, the 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 machinery of the ribosome. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's a traditional question here that many students can ask. What is the biggest discrepancy between work in simulation and real robot? Because there is also debate that what a significant parameter you have to incorporate in simulation so that you can make sure you have the closer gap between simulation to reality. From your expertise, yes. how you yes. approach this problem? Yes, that, that's a that's a good question. Um, I think there's definitely there's still a huge gap between what we can do in a in the simulator and what we can do in in the physical world because of course in the physical world you have uh, you have noise uh, you have your sensors might not be perfect um, uh, so so there's a lot of also engineering work that goes into getting things work in the real world that's why I mostly focus on simulation because it's just we can iterate faster um, but but I think also now we recently wrote. Um, a review article with Julian Tugelius about um, 
how procedural content generation can mach make machine learning more uh, more general. And so so now we we we're getting researchers are developing methods that that uh, can facilitate this transfer to the real world by using ideas from like procedural content genera content generation and domain randomization. So the idea is that you train uh, a robot in a simulator on a variety of different circumstances, different colors, textures, uh, different levels of friction. And, and by training a robot, a simulated robot on all these different variations, then you have also an easier time transferring that control to the real world because it learned uh, some uh, a more general policy. And uh, one example, one great example of this is the where OpenAI, they trained this robot in a, in a simulator to manipulate this Rubik's Cube. And because they used this kind of domain randomization con procedural content generation, they were able to then transfer it to the real world and it still worked. So I think now we are seeing that, that some methods that were developed in this field of procedural content generation or PCG, they're starting to help also to narrow this um, reality gap um, to a certain extent. But it's of course, it's still, it's still a problem, but I think we're kind of narrowing this gap through these methods which uh, facilitate the transfer um, to, to, the, to the real world. So if I ask you uh, what are most misconceptions you have witnessed about machine learning and robotics field, misconceptions you have? Or maybe people in the community, you see all that misconception, you are misunderstood a little bit. Yes, yeah, I think um, um, that's a good question. Um, I think a lot of people they might believe that it's um, if you have something, maybe not everybody realizes that there is this 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 gap between simulation and the real world. So some people might see like a, a very um, um, a very uh, impressive simulation of like a robotic system, and and think when you if you can run it in the simulator, maybe you can also run it in the real world. But but I think that that we're still definitely far from uh, having robots interact also outside of the lab. So, so maybe that's another misconception that if people see, you know, you have an impressive robot uh, in a lab setting, it's very different having an impressive robot that works on a, on a factory floor in the, real, in, the, in the real world. So there's still, even if you have something working in the real world, if you have something working in a lab, it's, it's it, under, under controlled circumstances, it's a, it's a very different story having the same system working in a, in a factory, dealing with uh, things it hasn't seen before, adapting to situations that, that were not anticipated by um, the, the engineer uh, or the designer of that, that system. So I think that's, that is probably a big misconception that people see, oh, the robot can do this, but then actually have it working in the real world is still, is still a, a big step beyond a lab setting. Mm -hmm. That's a great point. I'm curious to ask you this question because maybe someone can argue what could be the advantageous uh, traits you have gained while working in simulation domain? If you compare yourself with people working experiment only, what's something you have you think was uh, helpful for you to work in simulation, and why it's important? Because people sometimes underestimate why we have to invest in simulation and advancing simulation techniques. Right. I think. I mean. I think both things are very important. So. So ideally, um, um, you know, you have you worked in simulation and on real robotic system. I work more in the simulation, uh, just because it it also allows me to uh, experiment more. So I think that's one of the maybe like maybe main advantages that you can test more hypotheses faster if you have mm -hmm. like a, a, a simulated environment. And also, a lot of the questions. I'm interested in um, about, for example, artificial evolution. 
They don't require maybe the most complicated robotic system, but you can test it in actually in a very simple simulate, simulated environment. And that already gives you a lot of insights in what might be the property for creating a, a system that can, like an open-ended system that can create complexity. Uh, and that's more the questions I'm interested in than to make it actually work on a very complicated robot. Of course, ultimately, it would be great if we move to, to this more complicated system. But I think there can be a lot of, can be gained and learned by running things on, on, on not too complicated simulation environments. So you can run a lot of experiments uh, and you can test a lot of hypotheses. So I think maybe that's the, the main, one of the main advantages. Um, mm -hmm. But I think ideally, of course, um, it's a great advantage if you have access to both, if you can run these simulations, but they can also, you know, if you have a, um, a robotic system and then you can try it out on those as well. Um, but um, I think already through simulations, we can learn a lot about these uh, properties yeah. of these complex systems. Yeah. So if you can tell us more about your research in detail for the audience and what the challenges or research question you have in your mind recently. Yes. Yeah, so our research is, is focused a lot on kind of the, um, the combination of uh, evolutionary uh, ideas like evolutionary computation, integrating that with recent advances also in deep learning. So, mm -hmm. so there are a few different strains that we're also following. So, so one strain is this uh, one research line is basically uh, can we can we also can we create a system that can in an open-ended fashion produce novel behaviors, uh, novel forms? Uh, so trying to kind of reproduce the the power of uh, evolution in nature to create all this diversity we see around us. Can we create a similar system in a computer that would uh, like just keep on producing novelty uh, and interesting solutions to to interesting problems? Also potentially generating its own learning challenges. That's one one research focus of um, one emerging research research focus also of other of other labs. Uh, can we create, find the solution to a problem, but can we also learn, can the algorithm, algorithm learn its own curriculum? Can it learn to, to create its own uh, learning environments that help it to become more and more complex? So that's one line. Uh, the other line we're interested in this idea of um, uh, continual learning. So currently, often in machine learning, you have a system, you train the system like a neural network, and then you fix all the weights, and then it's really good at the task at hand. But if I change something, something very small about the system, let's say I give it an, I give a, a, a robot arm an object it hasn't seen before, or in a game like StarCraft, I slightly change the, the, the power of each unit, then these systems will, will oftentimes completely fail because they're not able to continually adapt. They're basically frozen. Uh, they have all their parameters frozen. And, and so slight changes in, this, in the environment can oftentimes make these, these systems break down. And so these systems are very, very brittle uh, in, in their ways of how they can adapt. So uh, one line of uh, one, um, um, one, one pillar of our research tries to um, give these, these neural networks more flexibility and that they can automatically adapt and learn during the lifetime of the agent or the robot. Uh, and another idea is to, uh, can we make them more robust by using things like procedural content generation that we can generate the challenges of the agent themselves to try to push them towards more uh, general policies? Because that's one thing we've seen in a lot of research is that deep reinforcement learning is great at solving a particular challenge, but it very often overfits to the particular task at hand 
and it's not very good at, at the solutions it generates are not very good at generalizing to slightly different variations of the same uh, problem. Mm -hmm. That's great. I think that's related to uh, your interesting paper lately about meta learning through happy and plasticity and random network. If you can tell us the inspiration, because I think that's ha happened in the nature that when you have a damages in the morphology and it's still functioning and how the system is responsive. I, I, if you can tell us what is, firstly, what is happy and plasticity, uh, if you can explain firstly. Yeah. Uh, yes, um, yeah, that's one work I'm really excited about that we just um, uh, recently put on archive. So the idea in, in happy and learning is that uh, instead of starting from, for example, fixed weights, the idea in happy and learning is, and that's also one of the processes that had been shown to happen in, in our brains, basically, when you learn. So happy and learning in the, is a simple, the, the, the basic form of happy and learning is that two neurons in our brain that always fire together if they are connected, then the connection between those two neurons becomes stronger over time. Uh, and so this is a mechanism, this is a, one of the main mechanisms that our brains learn is that, um, that this process happens. And so different, certain um, synapses get strengthened over time. Other synapses, if they don't fire together or if, they, if one fires before the other, they might get weakened over time. So during our lifetime, the connections in our brains change in strength and there's also new connections, new synapses that get formed and new neurons that get born. So it's a, it's a learning mechanism that is used in, in our brain. Uh, and in our work, we use this mechanism to... So we, we wanted to um, explore the idea of uh, going the complete opposite of what normally people would do in deep reinforcement learning. So normally people would train a neural network and then these, the weights that the, that the agent is born with are the weights found through deep reinforcement learning, but the agent doesn't change those weights. So we, we ask ourselves the question, what if we start every time the agent starts its lifetime, uh, we start with completely random weights, and so we don't train the weights at all. The only thing we train is different types of heavy learning rules. Like, and different types of heavy learning rules, I mean, um, how much does it take into account that um, the presynaptic neuron fires or the postsynaptic neuron fires or, or if both fire together? So we have these different parameters that for every connection in this neural network determine how much should the weight change during the lifetime of the agent. So each time step while the agent interacts with the environment, the network is dynamic and changes and, and finds its own, um, uh, uh, changes the, the, the weights uh, in a, in a sense, in a, through um, what's learned, the, and these parameters are learned through evolution. So evolution has to figure out how to best control um, these, how to to set these parameters so that the weights go to some point in the weight space that would allow the agent to perform well in the particular uh, domain. Mm -hmm. That's a great. So I think if you can just tell us what could be limitation compared to re reinforcement learning. Uh, for this technique, is this a limitation you had really now? Yes. Um, so, so one thing we one thing we noticed, of course, if you if you have uh, like we also applied this to a quadruped, a simulated quadruped robot, and if you if you know if your morphology is fixed, that means that I always have the robot running on a fixed morphology with um, mm -hmm. that I know in advance then you, you're better off with deep reinforcement learning. Uh, it probably finds a, a, a controller that's more high-performing. But what we also show in the paper is that if 
the robot during its lifetime um, is damaged, for example, like I, I damaged a leg, um, then uh, it's easier for the Hebbian network to adapt to this changed morphology without giving it any additional reward during its lifetime, uh, while a fixed network that was that's trained through the normal deep reinforcement learning process fails. So if you want generality, uh, this is a useful approach that allows the network to to adapt to slight variations in morphology and 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 some some form of damages. Of course, it does. It's not it's not magically. Uh, allowing it to adapt to any damage, but to some form of damages. While if you just, if you know that you're for certain that the morphology will not change, there will be no damage, there will be no unexpected events, then the typical reinforcement learning approach might be better. Um, mm -hmm. so, so it depends, it's a little bit depending on how much generality uh, you want and how much adaptation uh, you want in your, in your method. Sorry. In the scenario that uh for example, if we have a manipulator for robotics and just a system, if we have a finger, for example, and just damage is happening, do you think that system cannot be able to, failure could happen, cannot adapt to the scenario you, you set for the simulation? Is that something you expect to happen to system cannot solve and just fa have failure? Yeah, I, th I think uh, that's definitely one thing we want to test now is to try it on more complicated domains. And we also have a robot arm in, in our lab. So, so I think that's the next step is to try it on a more complicated problem. But I have a, I'm, I'm optimistic that if we train the system on enough variations of the problem, uh, like through generating uh, enough variations uh, and using something like this heavy and learning, uh, then I think we have a good chance that it would be able to adapt also to failures in, you know, like a robot manipulator. Um, while I think a static network will likely not work that well in those circumstances. There's also some form of adaptation that can happen if you train. And that's, we have seen this in the, in the example of OpenAI, that it was able to react to slightly different sizes of, um, of the, the cube uh, because it also had a recurrent network, which is a form of, it can learn a form of, of meta learning, uh, but I but I feel like the heavier form of learning uh, in it should have a, a larger array of what it can adapt to. At least that's my intuition. But that's something we're very um, curious to find out and to test in the future. Yeah. So if I ask you what research direction looks most promising for future work in genetic algorithm and neuroevolution. For example, do you see any way we can forward or speeding up the process of computation and decreasing the computation requirement? Yeah, I think one, one area that is very interesting to me is, um, uh, is this idea of uh, that, that two, uh, like one is this surrogate assisted evolution or neuroevolution where uh, the, the one challenge in, in evolution is that oftentimes you, it takes quite a large population size and you have to do a lot of evaluations. So one area of uh, recent area of um, uh, where a few labs uh, are, are invested in is this idea of um, um, surrogate-assisted uh, evolution, where basically instead of having to evaluate each individual in a costly domain, uh, and for example, this the lab of John Baptiste uh, Moray at Indra, they're doing a lot of uh, work there. So instead of evaluating each individual in a costly environment. Um, you learn a function that would give you an indication of how good will that individual perform. So instead of having to actually simulate it, you have a, some function, could be a neural network, that would already, given some uh, characteristics of that individual in the population, 
it could already give you some indication of how well it will perform. And this way you can really speed up the process. So you have, you have basically like um, kind of an oracle that will tell you this will likely work well, this will likely not work well. So you, you can really speed up uh, the process of evolution by using these kind of surrogates in your evaluation. That's also a really promising area, if, especially if you're moving towards the real world, because their evaluations are even more expensive than they are in a simulator. So if you would have a function that could already tell you this individual will likely not work before you have to try it out in the real world, you can, you can, save, a lot of, um, you can save a lot of time um, through that, um, that process. Mm -hmm. Maybe this is a related question also. What's any area or direction of research you think is very promising, but the community seems to disagree or doesn't give much attention? Moment. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I personally think um, that like evolutionary algorithms, I mean, everybody's um, uh, talking about deep learning, but I think evolutionary algorithms have a, uh, they're very promising, but they haven't, they're slowly capturing, I think, the broader community and, and more and more people are interested in, but I still think they didn't get the recognition yet uh, that they uh, deserve. And a lot of people are worried about sample efficiency if you use a gradient free method. Um, but we have seen that oftentimes they can actually compete with reinforcement learning. So I think that's one area where um, we will see a lot of progress uh, in the next couple of years, especially combining ideas mm -hmm. from neuroevolution and evolutionary computation with recent advances in, in deep learning and advances in different types of uh, neural architectures. Um, so, so I think we'll see a lot of um, um, advances there. Another area that I think... Um, uh, is kind of, um, there has been also been interest, but also not as much as I thought there would be, is maybe this uh, idea of memory augmented neural networks, like the neural Turing machine, uh, which there are some papers on it, but it's, it's still, um, I would have expected there's more work going on there because they allow you basically to learn not just like input-output mappings, but actually more complicated uh, algorithms which I think could be very useful not just for, for simulated agent, but also for, for robots uh, ultimately, so I, I, I'll, I, I think there will be more work along those lines uh, as well. Mm -hmm. And do you think learning theory improves can give insights in deep neural network or do you believe our mathematical machinery just isn't potent enough to handle the complicated nature of uh, deep neural network? So I think um, I think there's definitely a lot of value in in uh, um, developing the lear learning theory and and proofs. Um, uh, it's not my my area, but I'm I'm glad that some people are um, are uh, uh, researching that direction, which will allow us also to uh, design more more efficient learning algorithms by understanding what's actually going on in these deep neural networks. But I also see that it's quite there are a lot of uh, things where maybe the theory would have said uh, it it's supposed to be this way, but then actually in praxis it turned out. Uh, it, it was a very different story. So in theory, um, uh, back in the day, people thought that these neural networks have a lot of, if you use gradient descent like backpropagation, that you would end up in these local optima. But then it turns out in praxis, if you have uh, billions or like if you have millions of connections in your neural network, then it's very unlikely that you will get stuck in one of these local optima. So so sometimes the theory might you know contradict or, or actually in... in in reality, it might actually not be a problem what, what you thought that, that theory predicted. But I think that having both work together hand in hand, I think it's a good way. Uh, and the more we learn about deep neural networks, I think the better. And it's 
but it's also very complicated uh, as these systems grow in complexity. It seems it's harder and harder to get like real deep insights and knowledge about actually what is happening, how how we know about the training method, like how backpropagation work, but there's still so much we don't know. How exactly are these features learned in these neural networks? Why it shows certain properties? So, so I think there's a lot we can still learn, um, and I think we're making progress, but it's it's um, it's definitely still a lot left. Yeah, I think this question is related. Uh, where is there any direction you thought would work out very well that empirical result proved something else? Was interesting for you, or you didn't expect it in Siri, or maybe were you sketching those ideas you have and, and expected something different in in the result? Maybe interesting. Yeah, I I mean I I think. This, uh, the idea of what I mentioned before, the idea of neural Turing machines, I'm, I'm surprised that that's mm -hmm. not happening, uh, that that's not used for more different things. I would have expected that to, to have more, um, more of an impact. Maybe the, the challenge is also that it's a challenge still to train these methods, to train, because the more complex these systems become, uh, maybe the, it's also more challenging to train them with gradient descent-based methods. Um, so, so some of the work we did is trying to train these systems with evolution, which worked well. Um, so, so I could see that there's a, there could be a benefit of combining also evolution with um, deep learning methods in, in cases where maybe it's just really difficult to backpropagate these gradients through these methods and we can make them work better by actually using methods that are gradient uh, free or using mm -hmm. some combination of, of those. Mm -hmm. And what could, what do you think is parallel to nature? Do you see possibly influencing your research going forward? Yeah, I mean, our research group we we take a lot of inspiration from from nature. So um, I think so, so. We're trying to to learn um, about what what kind of system do we need to set up to get this kind of more open-ended evolution. Uh, I'm also very interested in this in in learning more about the. Um, the neuroscience part and, and, and how that can influence the kind of systems we want to create. So also this work on Hebbian, on Hebbian networks that we, we did is also very much inspired by like a more biological plausible uh, neural networks. Not that they, are very, that they are close to anything like the brain, but it's, it's more that these networks just learn by, through, local, uh, through local learning rules instead of relying on something uh, like the uh, backpropagation. Um, so, so I think we can definitely take a lot of uh, inspiration there. One, one area that I'm also very keen to move more into is this idea of having these large systems self-organized. So, um, and we see this also in heavy network where a large number of neurons and weights self-organize to some value without global supervision. And I think that's also an area that we can, where we can take a lot of inspiration for things like swarm robotics, where you mm -hmm. also have individual um, units that might not be able to communicate with every other robot, but just their local neighbors. How can we create a system where that has millions of different parts, millions of different robots that could somehow self-organize in some coherent pattern, similar to how the cells in our body self-organize during the developmental process? So looking at how development in nature solved this problem of, of, um, of coordination uh, just through growth and local um, uh, local communication. I think that's that could be very influential also for areas like uh, like swarm robotics or um, in any system where you have a large number of parts that has to self-organize in, in some coherent uh, manner. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And how do you see the trade-off between the model and data? 
do you think we have to go farther ahead beyond black box modeling? Because sometimes we see, the, for example, the fall of a starch key because of the expensive data collection. So how do you see the trade-off between the data you have and model you propose? Yes, yeah, so, so I think ultimately, um, I think one very interesting direction is this idea of uh, more active learning. So, so I think we probably at some point have to move away from currently and oftentimes in machine learning, we curate a data set uh, and then we give it to the, to the machine uh, and to the, the model and then it learns through maybe some supervised process or some unsupervised process uh, to, to, to classify uh, what, are the, what are the images uh, or some other properties. But I think ultimately this is not at all how we humans learn we, we, uh, or how animals in nature learn. It's not that we get a curated data set at the start of our life and you memorize what you see and then um, you're ready to, to act in the world. But you, you, you perform a more active uh, part in learning. You, you choose your own. You can, you can um, uh, point your vision towards what you're interested in. Uh, and uh, some of these things might be hardwired through, um, through what, what evolution gave us. And that then uh, determines what we, what we learn about. So I think this active learning where the system itself can kind of choose what it wants to pay attention to, what it wants to ignore, what it wants to explore more. Uh, I think that, that will, I imagine that will become uh, very important in the future. So uh, I think we have to probably at some point move away, especially in, in, in in areas um, when we want more robust system, where the system itself can say, I want to learn more about this part, or I don't know enough about, you know, maybe I don't know enough about cars. So can you show me a few more examples about cars? And then the system gets better at classifying those. So this kind of active learning, uh, I think, will become more and more important uh, to create more robust systems in the future. Mm -hmm. I think that's also a question from a student um, asking how, how can a startup can build application that can be scaled without having resources of the leading company like Google, Amazon, and Facebook. Do you think that yeah. how we can democratize the data uh, we have? Yes. So, so I think for, um, for um, at the university level, I think, um, of course, it's hard to compete with these startups that have that have a lot of money and 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 um, or these com these big companies that have a lot of money and they can put a lot in compute. But I think there uh, also sometimes it, it it gives you new ideas if you are more resource constrained, uh, which we normally are at the university level, coming up with new approaches that that larger labs might not have thought about because they just they're throwing uh, sometimes uh, a lot of compute at the at the particular problem so i think we'll, we've we've seen uh, that there are definitely people that don't have that many resources that still innovate in this field because it's not all about just scaling up the algorithms by having more compute and more data that is definitely a big part about ai right now that oftentimes you can scale models and they work better the more data you have like the recent um, OpenAI GPT-3 is a good uh, is a good yeah. example that it, it's really interesting. It's not something you can do at home and not probably at the university. Uh, but then there are other approaches where you don't need that much compute, um, which we try to follow. Where uh, you you um, you might have an interesting idea for an algorithm that is new and and that is and you can show that it works well on a smaller problem, and then ultimately. Uh, maybe somebody uh, somebody else can pick it up and scale it to to more complex problems. Um, so I think you can still innovate um, and do interesting research, even though the the um, you might not have the same you know budget as as OpenAI or or DeepMind 
or other other labs uh, by being innovative and creative in the type of research you're you're choosing to pursue. Mm -hmm. I'm curious to ask you this question in terms of how GPT-3, for example, and the cost will be expected if we scale it. So do you think from your just imagination how we can one day we have a, the same structure as human brain and we don't have to go for this larger structure? Do you think how we can reach this level in your thoughts if you imagine? What's missing piece, do you think? Oh, to, uh, you mean to, to scale up neural networks? To yeah, but so when looking to the nature, we don't have these larger structures, what we see, the expenses and, and, and cost. So do, do you imagine how one day we can reach the same structure of human brain reduced size and we don't have these high costs for building large, a large network? Yes, I think there are different, I mean, one important thing is going to be, I think, hardware, like um, that, that we probably need some kind of dedicated hardware that would uh, do this uh, simulation um, that, that, should, that would make it faster and, and, and um, simulate more, because there's a lot of more, like the process in nature, our, our brains are very, very parallel um, mm -hmm. and, and so I think moving, and I mean, already um, researchers develop this more neuromorphic computing and, 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 and I think that will be an area that will be very interesting in the future if we figure out how to make these things really scale well. Um, and, and then, but I think the other really important component uh, is also that we develop algorithms that, that, are, that we don't just throw the data in, but that we develop algorithms that are more uh, data efficient. And so the more we understand about how these deep neural networks work, uh, I think the, more, the better we are able to generate these algorithms. And we have seen in the last couple of years that um, some approaches that, that might have taken, uh, you know, uh, like the training algorithms that, that took a long time to train, like weeks, now we can do it in, you know, hours. So it's, so it's also, we, we're getting more, like the computational resources are, of course, also expanding. So it will, I think it will be a combination of dedicated hardware, then we have faster computers and also having... Um, new methods that are more sample efficient uh, than the method we have right now. Um, and, and so I think it will be those, the, the combination of those things that will allow us to ultimately uh, scale to um, maybe the complexity of, uh, of, 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 a, of a human brain. But I think it was still, it's still a while off before we're there. But I think ultimately we will probably reach that complexity. The other question is, it's, I guess it's not just a matter of complexity. It's not just a matter of having the same number of neurons and connections, but actually what is the system doing with those resources? So, and there, I think we're, we're quite far off from developing anything that has some kind of more general artificial intelligence. So we have still, we have no idea how to develop a more general artificial intelligence. We, we, we are now at a place where we can develop uh, neural networks and methods for a particular problem, a very small problems, uh, like complex problems, but still compared to what humans can do, they're still quite narrow. Uh, and we have no idea how to go to a more general artificial intelligence. Even if we had the resources, I don't think, even if we can simulate uh, as many neurons as we have in the brain, we would not suddenly get something that is, uh, has a general in intelligence. So we still need other methods other learning methods to to get there um yeah yeah great so how can we enable more inclusive culture around the combative ideas this question about intellectual inclusiveness so when you have a funding grant there's a huge competition in, in academia about the ideas and how who would deserve the 
the attention for uh, the right technique. So how would you see this question? Yes. So I think one thing that's definitely very important and the field is slowly moving towards it, but it's still, we still have a long way to go is more, of course, more diversity. Uh, so more diversity in the labs, the, the people in the labs that the, um, that the solutions we develop um, uh, also can help as many people as possible. I think that's an important point to have a diverse uh, lab with a diverse culture to, to know what are actually these challenges that we don't develop just solutions for one particular, uh, the majority. Um, and, and so I think this, that, that is, will be an important goal. Um, and to basically diversifying um, uh, the, the, the labs and the PIs also that, that should be chosen. Like the, ideally we have a large diversity of, of PIs that do interesting research and not just only uh, a particular group of people. I think that, that will be very important in the, in the future. And, and there, there are certain like initiatives uh, in this direction, but I think we have to start very early already in, uh, in high schools getting, for example, more, uh, more girls also interested in, in this field of uh, AI and, 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 and very early on. And then, and then hopefully also with the hiring decisions, hiring for more diversity, I think those will be important um, um, steps in the future to, to ensure that we can use these methods for not only a certain subgroup, but for, for the, like, um, a larger population and diverse population of, of people. Mm -hmm. And uh, as you are heading of your lab, how you ensure what you develop in your lab is beneficial to the community? Do you have this kind of discussion, bring to the table, how we design something could be meaningful? Yes, so, so we have these discussions and we're also uh, thinking about establishing right now a course on AI and ethics, I think, which mm -hmm. would be uh, very helpful to have. So, so we're going to start with introducing for each of our courses that has an AI component, we, we're going to have uh, lectures on AI and ethics because when while these methods with these methods becoming more and more powerful, it's also more and more relevant to make sure that they're used for for something good. And we're already seeing that there's a lot of misuse in like these deep fakes and and how yeah. people use these systems. So I think it's important to show students what the also the yeah the bad things that can be done with it. And and we're currently developing also with. Um, uh, with other faculty here, this AI and, and, and ethics course that, that will hopefully also have a very diverse uh, crowd. And, and then on the other hand, will we'll, um, um, we'll, we'll hopefully help a little bit that th these methods are not um, misused. Um, so, mm -hmm. so, so that's, that's what, our, what, we, what we plan to do. And then make this that's course right. also um, available for uh, you know, like other people outside and, and put the, the course material um, online to reach uh, like a large um, audience as, as possible. That's a great, yeah. So if I ask you what the most impressive AI system exists in our today life and why do you think it's very impressive? Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good question. I think, I mean, there are a lot of different uh, approaches that I think are, are really exciting. I, I think, um, I mean, it's it's really exciting. This, for example, this GPT three, how well it how well it works. I mean, of course, it's it's still very. Um, it learned on a lot of data. It doesn't have any like general intelligence or anything. But the output it produces is very. It's still quite uh, impressive, even though if you have to cherry pick some of those results. But in terms of the most impressive system, in terms of the the the, um, the the research the innovation and also the engineering effort i would still probably say like the alpha 
star, the, the StarCraft playing AI by DeepMind, I think it's still, that's still impressive that that worked. Uh, and uh, because the space of possible actions you can do in StarCraft is so, is so large and that it was able to compete at this high level, I think I would not have expected that to happen that quickly. So for me, that's probably still the most impressive feat that we have done, um, uh, that mm -hmm. the community has done uh, reach so far um, because it's, it's, um, it's a really complicated uh, problem. Um, and um, yeah, so I, I was surprised when, when I first saw that. Great, yeah. We're closing to the end, we have a few questions. Do, do you think ego is important for the researcher? Oh, ego. Um, I think I think what's important, I'm not sure like ego is important, but I think you have to have a certain optimism and also being um, that you don't give up when you see uh, a, a problem. So I was just listening to also uh, this uh, book, Thinking Fast and Slow, where they talk about <laughs> that researchers in general need to be optimistic because basically most of the time you're confronted with failure. And only every once in a while do you have uh, some success. So you need to really be optimistic that what you're looking, what you're searching for right now, researching, will eventually something will will come out of this and work. So I think maybe not so much ego. I think it's more optimism. And 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 also another important um, property is probably being creative. Uh, that you come up with interesting solutions. Um, and not also very important is, is uh, that you're able to collaborate with people because there's not anything that's done basically by the single like a single researcher that sits you know in, in his or her lab and 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 uh, just by itself but if you in, in especially in AI it's a lot about collaborating with people if you wanted to solve larger challenges um, so I think that's more important than having ego is being able to collaborate being creative um, and being optimistic and if I ask you what is maybe the most important quality you have gained while being in academia, something you have to maintain in your joining for academia? Yeah, I think the, one of the most important qualities maybe is that, you're, that you can still, that you can get excited about things and, and mm -hmm. care deeply because a lot of times these research projects, they span might be for multiple years and so you really have to be excited about it and that you don't give, give up. And, and I think that's probably one of the main things that... Um, that this that this teach this taught me is to also kind of not giving up too early. Sometimes I mean sometimes you have to know when to say you know you're moving on to a different problem, but sometimes it can take a long it can take a long time until your approach works. So not giving up too early is probably one of the main lessons that that I learned also when I did my PhD uh, back in the day because some things they just take time and 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 they will they can work eventually, but um, they, they, it's not that you that it will work after a week. It might take a few months. It might take a year for something to work. Um, so that that I think not giving up is a important uh, quality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with you. So if I ask you, what is a successful recipe for mentor-mentee relationship? What makes it successful? Yeah, I think the important part is to understand also that both kind of sides understand each other. What are what is each other's goals, um, and especially to understand the goals of the uh, mentee that that you, you know why does this person what does this person want to uh, achieve uh, how can you best help that person uh, and in that sense also communication I think is one of the main important things that you can freely uh, communicate without any um, um, yeah without any restrictions that you can say tell each other really what 
what do you want to get out of of this um, this collaboration? Uh, and and so communication is important, and and I think support that um, you know ideally the, there should be a lot of support for the mentee um, a, a, as well, um, and 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 as and yeah, communication and listening to what the other person I guess what the yeah. other person's goals goals are uh, is is uh, really the most important thing. That's really, that's really important. Yeah. Finally, what was the best advice was given to you as a person professionally, and when the life is changing for you? Right. Yeah, that, that's also a good question. I think um, maybe, and I also try to give this to my students normally, is to, to do what you find interesting. So I think the most <laughs> important part in research is that if you find something really interesting, then you, you oftentimes, you know, then you will be very, um, then you will keep on trying to solve that problem. If you're not interested in, in the research project, then it will likely, you will probably not find out anything because it takes a lot of um, like sticking with a particular problem. So I think my, one of the most important advice is maybe that you should find a project, uh, like especially when you start a PhD, that you're really, really interested in because you will work a long time on this problem. Uh, and, and so that's the one of the most important things. Maybe not just following the current trends. I think that's another important advice. So mm -hmm. don't just um, do what everybody else is doing. I think trying to stay a little weird uh, can be really beneficial. Trying to find your niche of things where where you're good at that that are creative, maybe not trying to compete always with the, the current state of the art, um, but following what you're interested in. And if, if you do that, I think then then that's a good that's a good recipe to, um, yeah. Brilliant advice and very yeah yeah. I think that's something we have to reflect in our research: the argument and debating the new techniques. I, I mean that's something we have to incorporate in as a scientist. Yeah. I agree with you. Do you have any final words for uh, robotics community would like to say? Um, yeah, just thank you very much for the invitation. It was uh, really, uh, really great. Uh, it was really nice and uh, really great questions. Um, um, so yeah, I think um, that's all I had. Thank you. I really enjoyed the discussion. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks a lot.